It is another marathon interview with Paul from the Sirius Report. Be prepared. This one goes for about two hours, so maybe you want to clean the house. I mean, for the really long podcasts, that's what I do. So if you happen to be listening to this and you have a few options, you're around the house, you're by yourself, I would say go into organization mode. Have you been holding off on washing your windows and Windexing? Now is your chance. This is going to be your episode to get everything you need to get done around the house. So hello and welcome back, everyone, to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and as I was saying, we have Paul back from the Sirius Report, a controversial figure, but we do not shy away from controversy and non-mainstream you know, views. We have to listen to everybody here in the spirit of an honest conversation here. So you're going to hear all sorts of information from Paul on geopolitics, global finance, the metals markets, and everything and everything, even Silicon Valley Bank, which has become quite a story here, clearly. I started to feel like this was not going to blow up, at least not yet, when everybody started saying it's going to be 2008 over the weekend there. I mean, it was interesting. I would say really what's going on, maybe that's most interesting, at least from one of the things, is what's going on in the crypto market. I mean, you had the main stablecoin, USDC, go down to 90 cents from a dollar. This is pretty unusual. And now you've had a massive rally in the last two days here. And of course, the crypto bulls are out there saying money is leaving the system. Confidence is being lost. I think it's all going to be, you know, if I had to guess, and that's all this is, I think it's going to be short-lived. But it's a provocative thesis, isn't it? Because these bank runs, I mean, it sounds like a 1930s type scenario, especially for regional banks. There is a sense out there that if you're in a smaller bank in the U.S., that maybe you shouldn't assume that your money's going to stay there. I mean, I think the biggest surprise for me, which I discussed with Paul, is how many people had over $250,000 in their bank account? And maybe a lot of listeners here do as well. Like, I'm quite surprised. I mean, I, I thought everybody knew, and I think everybody does know, that, you know, you're not insured over $250,000. So I guess everybody just assumes the system's going to be there. And I understand also that it's actually not as simple as it sounds to diversify. And where are you going to put it? I wonder, like I would think a brokerage account, again, not financial advice, and you know, I don't I don't have two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in my bank account, so I'm not out there, you know, about to give advice to people that do. But anyway, it's uh you know, there's so much money out there as I think Grant Williams I was listening to Grant Williams being interviewed recently, and I thought he put it really well that this decade it's really the big challenge is going to be to hold on to your money and whatever you have. And you saw it even with USDC there, US dollar coin in, you know, in the crypto industry that even what was considered probably the safest, most stable asset was being down 10% in a day. You know, just like regional banks that you think, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, you know, clearly People who had millions and millions of dollars in there didn't think there was a problem until there was. And so you're starting to see these cracks and fissures. As I was discussing with Paul, it's kind of like we're seeing more and more red flags. And I, again, I think of Grant Williams there 
The real challenge in this environment is going to be holding on to your money. And then there's another great statement that I heard. It was someone quoting Luke Groman, where in times of war, truth is the first casualty and following that is the bond market. And that was interesting. And that one actually resonated and hit home because my family comes from Italy, half of my family. And of course, during World War II, all that money that was in bonds was basically worthless. And after that, for a long time, you know, one dollar was a thousand lira. And so, you know, you put it all together, you put everything together, it sure is a minefield out there. Conversely, it is a golden age in news. Anybody and everybody can start a news program these days. The barriers to entry are basically your ability to speak and present. That is your barrier to entry. The stories are there to be told. The establishment media has never seemed less credible, probably, I'm assuming, in the last 70 years. I don't think that's a controversial statement. If anybody from CNN is listening here, perhaps. But all to say, it's never been a more dramatic and interesting situation. So why not bring Paul back on for our quarterly update on the big picture, which is, you know, as we know, is crucial to metals markets here and also to the energy markets. They're all interlinked. So a wonderful show. And before we move on, I just got an email here on the last show, and I thought it was quite interesting, regarding Dean McPherson from the TMX, and I thought it was a really interesting comment. So I asked the commenter, the person who emailed me, if I could read this. As a Canadian retail investor who grew up in Sudbury and worked in the mines while I was going to university, I have bought and sold mining companies as investments now for decades. When it comes to junior mining companies, the only exchange I will buy stocks on is the TSV and the Venture Exchange. I think he meant the TSX and the Venture Exchange. A big part of the reason is that between the exchange and the regulators, there are prescribed regulations and oversights as best as practical when publishing reserve estimates, economic feasibility studies, etc. Witness the 43101. I think for many investors in this space, the TSX is important because it has standards and enforces them. I do not know what the Australian requirements are or Frankfurt, for example, where many juniors are listed. An episode where this is discussed and explained would be very helpful to many investors. It is not a pump and dump marketplace, or at least to the best case possible. And that is a retail investor in Vancouver. So very interesting comments there. So maybe we will try and get more information on just sort of the I guess the regulatory side of exchanges, I'm sure Dean knows someone, and I'm sure there are many people that could speak to that subject. So thank you for the email, and I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Also coming up, we have a CEO spotlight. Thank you to Aston Bay Holdings for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. We're interviewing CEO Thomas Ulrich on their Storm flagship project in Nunavut which sounds quite interesting, and an interesting gold project in Virginia. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a rock'em sock'em episode with some fascinating news stories. Singapore is increasing its gold holdings. Another European smelter shuts down. Volkswagen opens a plant in Canada, and on and on. So there's too much to get to here. So let's get to it. 
Thank you again for joining us. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Thomas Ulrich, CEO of Aston Bay Holdings, for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome Thomas Ulrich, CEO of Aston Bay, to the Northern Miner podcast for this week's CEO Spotlight. Thomas, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. So tell us about Aston Bay. I think maybe people are familiar with the name, but for those who want to know more or don't know that much about the company, tell us what are you up to and you know what are your projects? Sure. Uh, so Aston Bay, you know, we're in the business of uh, discovering high-grade copper and gold in North America. We have two main projects. Our flagship project, the one that uh, our original asset is Storm and Seal Zinc uh, projects up on Somerset Island in Nunavik. And the other thing we're working on is a bit warmer spot. In uh, We're looking for uh, copper and uh, gold in Virginia. Okay, excellent. So you would consider then the Storm project in Nunavut as the flagship project then? Absolutely, yeah. It's a project that was originally found by Cominco in the 90s. We've been working on it to try to develop the near-surface resources there. You know, we have uh, going to be moving this project forward aggressively this uh, summer with a uh, both a spring and a summer program. We're going to be doing delineation drilling and geophysics in the spring with a heli-portable RC rig. Uh, We're planning up to 10,000 meters there, and then uh, coming back again for a second program in the summer. Continuing with the uh, near-surface exploration with the RC rig, but also to test some of these uh, the, the hypothesis that we've always had up there that there could be something really big hidden at depth, and so we're going to be doing some uh, uh, deeper core drilling and really try to uh, to see if we can make a discovery uh, of something big. You know, and what I'm talking about, you know, the kind of mineralization that we're looking for here, you know, it is that sedimentary hosted copper style of mineralization, and for people who are un- unfamiliar with that, it is the uh, the copper mineralization of the type you find in Central Africa. Congo, you can think of Kamala Kakula. Okay, excellent. So, so this is a copper zinc project. Is is that correct? Yeah, uh, there, there actually there's two separate uh, projects up there: a storm copper and seal zinc. You know, uh, seal zinc has a 43-101 resource on it. It's quite small. Uh, you know, it's about a million tons, but it's over 10% zinc uh, with uh, about an ounce and a half of silver with it. That's a bit of a uh, less importance uh, at the moment. Uh, you know, we think copper is where we can really extract the, the most value uh, up there. And again. High-grade copper intercepts, uh, you know, uh, we, did, we had a drill program last summer. We drilled uh, 10 drill holes. An example, uh, you know, some of the intercepts over 40 meters of over 4% copper, you know, from the very near surface. The copper, uh, you know, the mineralization, most of the mineralization does come right to the surface. It is uh, definitely, that is where, uh, you know, the excitement is right now. Fascinating. So this is in Nunavut. So therefore, how is the infrastructure and uh, tell us about the community. How, I was just kind of working where you're working. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, we are very far north. There's no doubt about that. We're about 71 degrees north uh, on Somerset Island. Uh, that's located just south of the uh, community of Resolute Bay, which is a community of about 200 people. It's also located uh, just uh, south of the uh, old Polaris mine. Uh, you know, that was a lead zinc mine run by Cominco for about 20 years from the uh, mid 80s. And, uh, you know, it, that's important. To, you know, the Polaris is important because it demonstrates not only if there's high grade large deposits, uh, you know, in the district, but also it demonstrates that you can mine them. You know, we don't have to speculate. It's been done before, uh, you know, and it's been done with the town of uh, Resolute Bay. And the people at Resolute Bay, they've seen it 
happened before. And I have to give uh, certainly uh, tech credit for their reclamation efforts. They did an excellent job closing that mine down and, and cleaning it up. And it's good to see that the local people can see how you know see the full process of a of a mine uh, you know being developed uh, you know the uh, the ore uh, taken out and then cleaned up in the end. We certainly hope to uh, you know continue you know with that excellent track record working with the community at Resolute Bay. You know on the island itself there is uh, no infrastructure. You know it, it is an uninhabited island, uh, so you know everything comes in uh, via sea lift or air uh, airlift. But um, uh, you know it is a uh, it has a lot of uh, the island itself has has some excellent qualities as far as putting a potential operation in there. Uh, you know, it is uninhabited. We are essentially above the area where you, know, you, you have any significant animals. Uh, really, uh, no caribou. Uh, you know, this far north, and the surface of the island there, where we are, is mostly broken limestone. There's not any of that uh, uh, ecologically sensitive tundra or uh, you know muskeg. We think it's a great spot to explore. Okay, so let's talk about that briefly, just as we wrap up here. So as far as permitting and, I guess, ESG concerns, how are you on all that front? How are things going with the project there? We've begun the, the process. Uh, we, we have a consulting company working with us that is, uh, you know, creating the roadmap uh, for, you know, for all the requirements, uh, you know, and the, uh, the baseline studies are, are underway. And, uh, you know, what we would like to uh, put in up there is a uh, ore sorting operation. You know, uh, ore sorting has a, a great ESG qualities uh, that come along with it. It, uh, it doesn't use any water. You know, there's no uh, sulfide uh, tailings uh, produced. And it has a very, very small footprint, uh, you know, at the surface. You know, we think we can get the project up and running on a very condensed timeline. You know, the, the permitting process is underway. Uh, for us, we've initiated that, and you know we think that with the excellent ESG uh, properties uh, of this type of operation, we hope to be able to really expedite that process and, and get underway, uh, you know, as soon as possible. Okay, excellent. So, in my final question here, then, what is your message for investors? What is the opportunity that you see here that that they could take advantage of? Aston Bay and our partners, American West Metals, are aggressively advancing the storm project, uh, and we think we can get into a, a, a near-term uh, revenue-generating operation up there, while at the same time continuing to explore for really significant discovery uh, of uh, what we think could be a, a major uh, sediment-hosted copper district up there. Okay, excellent. And uh, and where is the company trading? It is on the TSX Venture. It looks like the ticker is BAY. Is that correct? That's right. And on the OTCQB, ATBHF, Thomas Ulrich, CEO of Aston Bay. Thank you for joining us. It sounds like a fascinating project with a lot of potential. Thanks for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you once again to Aston Bay for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner podcast. Turning to the website, Singapore's central bank boosted gold reserves 30% in January. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Singapore boosted its gold reserves by about 30% in January, joining central banks from China to Turkey in building up holdings of the precious metal. The monetary authority of Singapore's bullion reserves rose to 6.4 million fine troy ounces, or 199 tons, at the end of January, up from 4.9 million ounces a month earlier. So it rose to 6.4 million ounces, up from 4.9. And that is 30%. A spokesperson for the central bank said in response to emailed questions, the total value of its bullion was $4.5 billion at the end of the period, the authority said. In a weird way, I would say it just goes to show how little gold a lot of these countries have. I mean, Singapore only has $4.5 billion of gold. 
It doesn't sound like that much, does it? At least to me. Quote, this is Singapore's second largest gold purchase ever in one month. And quote, Ronan Manley, a precious metals analyst at Singapore dealer Bullion Star, said in a blog post. The biggest was in 1968. Wow. When it bought 100 tons from South Africa. He said, so pretty interesting move out of Singapore. Europe loses another smelter as energy crisis leaves deep scars. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. And it says here another European aluminum smelter is closing in a fresh sign of the damage wrought by an energy crisis that's hammered the region's industrial economy and crimped supplies of critical raw materials. While power prices have retreated sharply from last year's peaks, Spira will shut its Rheinwerk plant in Germany this year due to challenges in the energy market, the company said Thursday. That follows a 50% cut in aluminum production announced in September as soaring power and gas prices plunged Europe's energy-intensive metals industry into an existential crisis. And this is a question I've actually had to myself recently. Some smelters have been ramping back up in recent weeks. I mean, we've heard that the energy price is pretty much back to pre-war, last I heard. But the Spira shutdown is the latest sign of the obstacles politicians face as they seek to prevent a further wave of deindustrialization. They are also looking to shore up local supplies of critical industrial raw materials as global supply chains become more fragile. The European Commission will aim to produce at least 40% of its annual consumption of strategic raw materials by 2030. Bloomberg reported on Wednesday, citing draft legislation that's due to be presented to politicians later this month. I mean, it sounds unbelievable that the European Union could produce 40% of its annual consumption of strategic raw materials. But let's see. The document didn't detail the commodities it will target. But in 2020, the EU identified 30 strategically important raw materials, many of which play a critical role in renewable energy, electric vehicles, aerospace, and defense. Bauxite, the mined ore that aluminum is derived from, was included in the list, although the metal itself wasn't. And when you look at actually the price of... They have a chart here. And when you look at the average cost to produce a ton of aluminum at German one-month baseload power price... It is still, when you compare it to like 2020, 2019, it still looks, at, as much as it's come down, it still looks at, at least double and just below cost in the last like couple of months. So as long as that's the case, there's no sense, you know, producing aluminum for cost. The spirit smelter will be placed on long-term care and maintenance and could reopen eventually if the economics improve, a spokesman for the company said by phone. Yet restarting a smelter is slow and costly, and some plants in the region that closed in prior downturns have never reopened. The European metals industry's main lobbying groups warned that further long-term financial support is needed to help the region keep control of raw materials that are critical to the green energy transition. And this is a theme we keep seeing as well. In addition to the ongoing threat posed by high energy prices, Europe is at risk of losing out to the U.S. in attracting investment due to the billions of dollars in subsidies available through President Joe Biden's controversial Inflation Reduction Act, the group said. So continuing on, speaking of which, Volkswagen to build first North American battery cell plant in Canada. Reuters via mining.com. And it says here, Volkswagen said on Monday it will build its first North American battery cell plant in Canada. 
granting its cars access to U.S. subsidies which require that electric vehicle batteries are made with North American materials. Under the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act guidance, cars only qualify for thousands of dollars in subsidies if a proportion of critical minerals in their battery were extracted or processed in the United States or a country with a U.S. free trade agreement or recycled in North America. You know, it does kind of remind you of uh, Indonesia and them wanting all nickel to be processed in Indonesia. You know, I guess they call this resource nationalism. Volkswagen confirmed in December it was looking for a site for a plant in Canada after it signed a memorandum of understanding with the country six months prior to secure access to key raw materials for batteries. And we have a quote from Chief Executive Oliver Bloom, who said in a statement, quote, With the decisions for cell production in Canada and a scout site in South Carolina, we're fast-forwarding the execution of our North American strategy. And don't forget, I mean, two months ago, they were railing at EU politicians. As far as my memory serves, we're reading stories here about how they just didn't get it as far as and how they were not going to open a plant as planned, if memory serves. So continuing on here and a related story, US-EU to negotiate critical minerals agreement. This is Reuters via mining.com. US President Joe Biden and EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen agreed on Friday to immediately begin negotiations on a targeted critical minerals agreement to facilitate meeting subsidy requirements in the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, the two leaders said in a joint statement. The agreement aims at, quote, enabling relevant critical minerals extracted or processed in the European Union to count toward requirements for clean vehicles in the Section 30D Clean Vehicle Tax Credit of the Inflation Reduction Act. The statement said, and continuing on, Europe balks at strategic stockpile for critical green metals. This is Bloomberg News. The European Union isn't planning to stockpile battery metals and other critical commodities as part of new measures to ensure supplies, rolling back a previous suggestion after some major manufacturers opposed the move. You almost wonder if it's because they have plants in North America <laughs> that they don't want Europe to raise the prices by stockpiling in Europe. A December study for the European Parliament recommended that the EU follow nations like Japan and South Korea by creating a strategic stockpile with the private sector that could be tapped if imports are interrupted. That could involve buying between 6.5 and 26 billion euros of reserves, the study concluded. And finally, it's a softer approach than authorities have taken in the US and China, where strategic stockpiling programs were set up decades ago. The fear among some European industrial firms is that rather than acting as a relief valve for buyers, a central stockpile purchase risk exacerbating the kind of frenzied buying seen in several key commodities markets in recent years. So almost exactly like we were saying, they're worried that this is going to raise prices. And President Ursula von der Leyen said in a statement, quote, we will identify strategic projects all along the supply chain from extraction to refining, from processing to recycling, and we will build up strategic reserves where supply is at risk. And we have a group representing Volkswagen who said, quote, centralized storage of strategic raw materials is the wrong strategy. Central stockpiling only puts additional pressure on the supply, which is already scarce, I am starting to think that maybe I was right there that, you know, if Volkswagen is setting up shop in North America, well, maybe they don't want Europe buying a whole bunch of metals off the market and stockpiling and raising prices that maybe are only accessible in Europe. And then we have Rolls-Royce weighs in, said stockpiling should only be considered 
After thorough analysis of needs and likely unwanted impacts, particularly the potential to further pressure already strained supply chains. And significantly, I would say Rolls-Royce is no longer a part of the EU. They are in the UK. I would like to hear from maybe BMW. Maybe they're setting up shop in North America as well. So who knows, but it's getting, you know, this desire to build cars is front and center. Another headline, Japan-Canada in talks over collaboration in battery metal supply chain. So while the EU and the US are in talks, Japan and Canada are talking battery metals. Japan and Canada are discussing collaboration on building strong supply chains for battery metals. Japan Industry Minister Yasutoshi Nishimura said on Tuesday, a public-private mission led by Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, and including 16 companies that work with batteries, visited Canada last week for talks on building sustainable and resilient supply chains. And we have a quote from Nishimura, who said at a news conference, quote, Canada has an abundance of battery metals and good market access to the United States. Canada is one of the most important countries for Japan when it comes to strengthening our supply chains of storage battery metals. So interesting, interesting. And a headline here, Canada will not retrospectively target Chinese investment in mining companies, minister says. I think they meant retroactively, but maybe retrospectively works as well. So we were discussing this with Dean McPherson from the TMX last week. And here we have Jonathan Wilkinson, who said at PDAC, the Prospector and Developers Association of Canada Conference in Toronto, quote, if you start looking backwards at investments, it will create all kinds of uncertainty about whether an investment is ever really an investment. So interesting to hear that. But later in the article, it says, of course, Canada will continue to have trade with China. Some of that may involve trade in critical minerals. And yeah, I assume Canada wants to keep receiving rare earths from China. If it does, I assume it does. And another headline, I mean, it's all one big story here, different facets of one big story. China could control a third of the world's lithium by 2025. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. China's efforts to ramp up lithium extraction could see it accounting for nearly a third of the world's supply by the middle of the decade, according to UBS. So I'll just leave that story there. If you want to read the whole thing, you can check mining.com. And another story from Reuters via mining.com, China removes all remaining curbs on Australian coal imports. So that is interesting, too. And it says here, China had been a major consumer of Australian coal before implementing its unofficial ban as political hostilities escalated between the two countries. And so they had an election in Australia and ties have improved dramatically since then. And more of the same, Zimbabwe's ban on lithium ore exports triggers stockpile buildup. So in December, they announced that in, actually it says here in the story, the ban introduced by the government last December in a bid to encourage locals processing the metal has resulted in 2 million tons of ore being stockpiled, according to Zimbabwe Miners Federation President Henrietta Rishwaya. Now the industry has asked President Emerson Mnangangwa to review the ban as it threatens the viability of their operations. So it's interesting. Industry has held out at building in Zimbabwe. So this is going to be an interesting showdown. And we have a quote from the letter that Rushwaya set to Mangagwa. Quote, the unexpected ban has prejudiced standing offtake agreements between miners and international buyers, some of whom had taken loans from their respective countries to trade in these minerals. So... Very interesting. And lithium has come down in price, apparently in the last few months. 
So we've only begun to start following the price here, but we have started. And we will tackle that in our metal prices, which is coming up right after this next headline here. Peru to unleash stranded copper with roadblocks largely cleared. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. So they had set up roadblocks last week, and now they are coming down. The government of Peru, second biggest producer of copper and zinc, expects that shipments of the commodities will begin to normalize within days as the nation's worst street protests in decades ease. And we have a quote from the newly appointed Energy and Mines Minister, Oscar Vera. Quote, the mining corridor is now open, and in the coming days, minerals will begin to be taken out. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, first, let's just take a look at the 10-year bond. And there has been some drama in the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond. It is down, with all the banking drama, it is down to 3.634%. It was down at 3.5% after just last week was at 3.94%. So that dropped nearly half a percent. And today is back up, you know, 0.13 from yesterday. So it is highly volatile for the 10-year bond there. Turning to metals, gold is trading at $1,906.74 per ounce. That is $71 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $21.93 per ounce. That is $0.19 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $988.84 per ounce. That is $35 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,509.47 per ounce. That is $89 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is down one penny at $4.03 per pound. Iron ore is up $8 at $133 even. Aluminum is down two cents at $1.06 per pound. Lead is at 94 cents per pound. That is down two cents from last week. Nickel is down 86 cents at $10.20 per pound. Tin is also down at $10.39 per pound. That is $1.10 lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.50 per pound. Lithium is down $3 at $48.47. And zinc is down 5 cents at $1.33 per pound. So what do we see is, interestingly, precious metals are up, industrial metals are flat to down, so it's almost like precious metals are moving more similar to crypto, uh, which has kind of gone pretty wild. I mean, Bitcoin was up 20%, from my understanding, in the last couple of days. So pretty interesting situation here. So it seems to be a bit of a risk off, but the markets are up today. So, I mean, if anything, this all reminds me of February 2020, right? When stocks were still at very high. And meanwhile, we had a pandemic that was gathering momentum. And before you know it, things weren't looking too good. That's what it feels like over here. Feels like, you know, 
markets are kind of climbing up, but that things don't look so great. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, my marathon interview with Paul from The Serious Report. He is very eloquent and provocative in his thinking, and that's why we like him. So it is a very interesting discussion on geopolitics, metals, energy, global finance, and even the banking situation in the U.S. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Today, I am very pleased to welcome back Paul from the Serious Report to the Northern Miner podcast. He has been on the program a few times, and he is definitely a very interesting, if not sometimes controversial character, but he is very fascinating. So I'm always happy to bring him on, and I'm always glad that he's willing to come on. Paul, welcome back. Well, thank you, Adrian. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. And I can be controversial, but with justifiable reasons. That's, that's the bottom line. But at the end of the day, it's about having the correct perspectives. And I think our track record demonstrates we say things that people don't believe or think it's impossible. It will never happen. And then things keep happening. And then people come back and go, oh, you were correct in this assessment. I mean, just a quick digression. We spoke for years about Saudi and Iraq and all the secret meetings and the reproachment that was going on. And, and in the end, you would see some formal announcement. What do we see? Eventually, a Chinese-brokered peace deal between the two nations was announced. And this is what is important, is to be aware of what is happening, because I think all previous understanding of how the world is operating is changing. This is a paradigm shift. It's a fundamental change. So we can expect to see things we never believed would be possible. And I will make a point in that regard. I think eventually, not now, we will see exactly the same sort of agreement reached between the Israelis and the Iranians. It has to happen. It doesn't mean it happens today or tomorrow, and that would seem unbelievable. But in the context of these changes, there's an inevitability to this at some point. So I think that's the basis of saying what we say. It's not just to be edgy and different for the sake of being different, because then there's no point doing that. We can all make grandiose statements about nothing, which subsequently never happened. And for some reason, there are people who do that, and they still have very large audiences, I think, because people like to be entertained rather than informed. But that's personal choice, of course. You know, there's always so many different directions we can go. And yeah, there is a fantasy element to the news. And, you know, speaking to people's kind of almost kind of wish fulfillment side of things. And I didn't even like hear that announcement of, of the, you know, the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And I wonder, is that because I'm, you know, looking at the wrong news channels or maybe it's not getting that much play? Like, did that get that much play? Not particularly in the West. It was kind of like uh, they're trying to downplay the significance of it. I think the United States is more upset that the Chinese look like the peacemakers than the Saudis and the Iranians actually reaching this agreement because, of course, they're trying to convince the world that China's the aggressor and China's always trying to uh, effectively be U.S. hegemon 2.0, which it's not. And this is another example where the world's going, hang on, so China helped broker this deal. This, and there's no material benefit 
for China to see the Saudis and the Iranians have reproachment. Yeah, they work with both countries independently, but it's of no intrinsic direct benefit to them. So this has upset the Americans greatly because they're trying to convince everyone they're an aggressor and people are going, hang on. This is a this is a major peace peace initiative. And and of course the world's going to the United States, well, you never achieved this. So how did they achieve this? So yeah, there's they downplayed the significance of it. I mean, there is huge kind of ramifications. That's probably conversation for another day, but it's not surprising in the West it's, there's been pretty low-key kind of response to this. But in a broader sense, and something I've discussed for a number of years, this has huge ramifications, both directly and indirectly, and it's another indication of the waning influence of the US and the Middle East. Well, fascinating, and you know, I, I want to get to metals and energy eventually, but I mean, it does make you wonder I mean, if China sees an opening here with kind of a resurgence and, you know, from my interpretation, it seems like the there's been a re resurgence really of the neoconservatives that we saw with the Iraq war. And it seems like that China might see an opening here as kind of being, you know, seen as a credible alternative and as a kind of a soft power opening, you know, in terms of like, okay, if the U.S. is going to be back to this kind of neoconservatism or very militaristic, strong, armed, you know, foreign policy, maybe China sees strategically a way of kind of positioning itself as kind of the, it's kind of like good cop, bad guy, they're the nice cop, ironically, because they're kind of vilified often by the West. Yeah, I think it's less a cop. It's just a situation where China has very strong relations with the Saudis. We've seen the recent with Xi. Uh, last December to, to Saudi. We know the strong relations that exist between the Chinese and the Iranians. They signed the $400 billion deal last year, and it's mutually beneficial relations. It works for China, it works for Saudi, and it works for Iran. And in a broader sense, it makes sense for Saudi and Iran to, to actually resolve their differences because it achieves stability in the Middle East. I mean, the United States doesn't want to see stability in the Middle East. It wants conflict everywhere because it thinks it benefits, and it has done for decades in having conflict in the Middle East. But if Saudi resolves its differences with Iran, there's talk of bringing Syria back into the GCC fold, Gulf Cooperation Council and in the Arab League. So... That starts to resolve problems. We know the relationship that, uh, that China and Russia have with likes of Oman, with Saudi Arabia, with Syria, with Iran, with Iraq. So increasingly, it just helps to create stability. And, and stability in the world is a good thing for all of us. Well, I think we've tended to forget because of decades of US hegemony just what stability will produce in terms of benefits for the parties concerned, but also in a broader sense. I mean, the Middle East potentially could become a huge investment opportunity, not just for the Chinese and not just in energy terms. We've seen that with Saudi and who wants the Chinese to bankroll their, okay, it might be flawed at this point, 2030 vision, but they're looking at saying we need to consider a post oil and gas world. Not that they oil and gas or oil in the case of the Saudis is running dry today, but there's a perception that you know, we need the investment. We want to be part of this Belt and Road because the Middle East is a is a kind of great, in, in geographical terms, you know, it's a gateway also to, to Africa, et cetera, and, and to parts of 
of Europe and obviously through Turkey. So there are huge possibilities. So it's less about being a cop. It's about saying, we keep telling you we have a vision for a different world. No one in the West believes us, but everyone in the global South understands because they're seeing reality. And, you know, China doesn't need to be an hegemonic power. It doesn't want to be. It knows how pointless that is. But if you work with nations and uh, in a cooperative way and you accept you're never going to agree on everything, there's things the Chinese doesn't agree with the Saudis and vice versa, but in broad sense, they're in totally agree with everything. You know, and it's understanding it doesn't matter. It's not you're with us or against us. And if you don't agree with everything we do, we can't have a relationship. You know, it's a very simplistic mindset in the US. So there is huge win-win possibilities. And and you know, the more stability you create in the, in the Middle East, then that's obviously hugely beneficial for the region. And you know, also the because of the ongoing problems with like the Yemeni war. Well, if you have rapprochement between the Saudis and the Iranians, there are already little rumors and hints. Hang on, maybe we can end the, the Yemeni war now. Because in reality, the Saudis don't want the war to continue, but there's the political cost in walking away and admitting they should never have started it. You know, so you start to deal with Yemen. You can resolve the problems in Yemen. It's it's political, it's financial, it's economic. But, you know, it's like Syria. If you cut the United States out of the equation, you can resolve huge amounts of the problem. And, and then there's the issue in the broader sense of Western-sponsored terrorism, ISIS, etc. Well, if there's a collective inside the Middle East that wants to end this, then they can resolve those problems. Where And then say, okay, to Afghanistan, yeah, you've got a problem. But if you start to squeeze the West out of the Middle East, you'll remove a huge amount of those problems. So it's, you know, in, in a broader sense, yes, there are benefits for, for China, clearly. Not just with both nations, but, but you know, it's not like China's waiting. It's It's got investment deals and agreements with many nations in the Middle East. This is just a way of going, well, you know, it makes sense to to have peace in, in this region. And yeah, in the process, it does squeeze the United States out of the equation. But the Chinese aren't bothered about squeezing the United States out of region. It's basically saying, look, we, the, these regions and us have had enough of this endless conflict. So let's find a way to end this conflict and, you know, this is an ongoing process. And as I've said, eventually you will see approachment between Israel and Iran. It will have to happen. And then if, if there's a consensus in the Middle East, maybe we'll start to get a resolution of the whole Israel-Palestine question because there has to be a two-state solution. How is that going to happen? Well, it's not going to happen. Whilst the United States thinks it's dictating policy in the region, it, it, it has to come about with a consensus, and then you know there can be political pressure for to bear to make this happen because this is ridiculous what's going on. So, you know, it's from the old saying: "From acorns, oak trees are grown." So it's a fundamental change in in the mindset of two nations who've been adversaries. But what's caused that? Typically, the United States has stoked those adversaries. The U.S. wants to create bogeyman to justify its policy and and make nations who should be uh, um, instead of being adversaries be cooperating cooperating as neighbors and, and eventually become allies and build trust that benefits everyone but it doesn't benefit the united states but finally 
nations are starting to realize hang on this is this is the way forward why and my question has always been why is it taking you this long to realize this but, you know such mm -hmm. is the way the mindset of the world but but we are seeing these big changes so it's far more than just the announcement it what what it means for the two nations in a broader sense you know like the yemeni war one etc and what does it mean for 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 bilateral trade between Saudi and, and Iran, and what does it mean to to eventually create an environment where Iran will not be sanctioned to oblivion by the West? But all this is encouraging nations to go trade in non-dollar terms. I mean, Iran's managed largely being the most sanctioned nation on the planet for decades. It, it's finding a way, but if it ha finds more and more partners. What does that do? It allows Iran to bring more and more energy, cheap energy into the market. And who's going to benefit from that? The global south. So it's a win-win for the multipolar world. And unfortunately, it's a, it's a loss for the United States. But the US needs to realize unipolarity is dead. And it has to accept the world's changing. And, and instead of being a nation that's aggressive and this zero-sum game mentality, say, OK, we need to reposition ourselves. but they're not capable of doing that currently on a political level. And there's this mindset and just genuine belief that we are the exceptional nation. What we're doing is for the good of the world, even though the rest of the world's going, hang on. It isn't good for us. We're sick of this. No, we're still, we, we continue to adopt policies where, and the hypocrisy, you know, where do as we say, not as we do. I mean, just a small aside, there was the protests in Georgia about this foreign agents law and the US is going, yes, you, you know, we support the rights of the Georgian people to stand up to to what they claim was this you know, Russian-backed policy. Of course, ultimately, it was to keep NGOs out who were destabilizing Georgia. But the hypocrisy is, who has these laws in place? The United States. You know, I mean, so they're doing exactly what they're telling other nations you're not allowed to do. and and. People are seeing this and understanding the hypocrisy and and realizing increasingly that when events happen in the world, who's behind them, what their motive is, what the, the and it's the same MO with color revolutions, etc. And and this is actually having a very detrimental effect on the US's position in, in terms of being this rapidly waning hegemonic power. Well, there does seem to be a credibility issue that has been growing in particularly in the global south. I mean, you saw it at the United Nations with, when the uh, U.S. was trying to convince countries to vote in certain ways. And there was a surprising amount of countries that seemed to, you know, basically either be neutral or and you see India. You mentioned before how, like, you know, it's amazing it took so long. But I think there was a sense until the last call it five, 10 years, that actually Europe and the West were not colonial. I think like coming from, let's say, an, a, the perspective of an African country, let's say. And I think that's actually changed. I think now there's a growing perception that actually these guys are still like they haven't figured out the, the lessons that, that there is kind of a colonial mindset. And then you see back to the credibility issue, then you know it takes us to the topic du jour, and then we will get to metals and energy, but, you know, of SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank. So there does seem, I mean, just to reaffirm what you're saying, like, I, I do think there's a, 
a growing credibility issue. And it's back to this hearts and minds, right? Because that's the stuff, you know, this soft power, the soft diplomacy, that's where you're going to lose people. But I think in a way it's, you know, they do, they have these votes in the U.S. And the U.S. is not just trying to be persuasive. They're actually being quite threatening, you know, in a sort of, uh, in a, in a, like you say, a soft power kind of way. They're not invading countries correctly, but they, you know, there's this very threatening kind of undertone to what they're saying to nations. You know, basically, if you don't vote with us, you know, you, you have to understand that, you know, that there will be ramifications, but they don't say it in a way that's direct. It's not like, by the way, we're going to have a color revolution in your country tomorrow, but, you know, they couch it in such a way that it's kind of passive, but very aggressive. And in some senses, some nations going, okay, just to keep the U.S. happy now, we'll vote with them. But the next minute, they're on the phone to whoever going, okay, yeah, sorry about that. But we have to vote that way. You understand? Yeah, we understand. Right, let's just carry on doing what we're doing. It's the, the U.S. enters the room. The U.S. shouts its mouth off. People agree with them. Then they walk out the room. And everyone goes, okay, what are we really going to do? And that's the position we've got to. It's just saying what you need to say in votes that really, frankly, are rather meaningless. They're not sim- they're just symbolic of, of nothing now. They don't carry any substance or gravity. And, and then let's get on with what we really need to do. And, you know, it's like India is a great example. I mean, how they've built their relations with, with particularly the Russians since the onset of the Ukraine war, buying enormous amounts of Russian oil and, and bypassing sanctions, trading in non-dollar terms. Uh, but the amount of veiled threats they get from the United States, and and then they they just are largely ignoring them because they realize it's it's just hollow. There's no real substance to it. The U.S. can overthrow small you know nations with with you know small country in population term, weak economically. You know the idea that they can go in and remove leaders in in countries like India and China is just farcical. So these countries have realized as well. Well, it comes back to the point with the Ukraine war. The, one of the biggest failings of the West was let's sanction the Russian central bank and steal, practically freeze, or in inverted commas, but in reality, steal their asset. That sent a message to the rest of the world, well, we could be next. So why would we want to, to stay within the, the, the SWIFT system, utilizing the dollar? We need to be thinking more sort of medium and long term about what the ramifications of this mean and how we're going to have to work to support each other in in a non-dollar environment and at the end of the day for india it's it's a win-win they get cheap russian energy and 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 who doesn't want cheap energy in a world where expensive energy causes huge inflationary pressure as still many in the west and particularly europeans don't seem to have grasped well we we've we've sorted out the problem of, of a lack of russian energy which they haven't because they're still importing huge amounts of Russian energy via the back door. Or in the case of LNG, it's like, well, we've got Russian LNG, but don't tell anyone we're importing Russian LNG. And don't tell the people it's costing 10 times or five times as much as it would if we had the pipeline gas. No, it's these kind of ridiculous situations that, that we find ourselves in. But yeah, for, for nations in the global south, they're emboldened by... The, by what they're seeing in terms of why de-dollarization is is of huge benefit to them, why 
you know, if your currency is being is being devalued enormously against the dollar, don't exchange your currency for dollars to pay for things. If you can trade with your neighbor next door in local currency, that irons this huge problem of because your your currency in exchange terms isn't being devalued against your neighbor next door. Trade in local currencies, this iron outs this huge inflationary problem you're experiencing. And everyone's suddenly going, Well, that's a great idea. Yeah. Let's do that. But I made this point to nations in the in in that region over ten years ago. Do you not understand why getting out the dollar? hugely beneficial what you know but the the stock answer is well we're frightened you know the, the us will try and come and um you know cause a regime change or assassinate a leader and put some puppet in who will then basically steal our asset impose massive austerity on us and crush our nation and we're too frightened to to go down that path, but now they've suddenly realized, well, actually, we've got the Chinese and the Russians there. We've got the Indians. We've got, you know, huge swathes of not just population, but also we now know that uh, in, in PPP terms, which is a far more accurate indicator of an economy than GDP, the BRICS nations is bigger now than the combined G7. And the BRICS nations is growing and you know significantly and and the g7 nations are falling off a cliff edge there's suddenly a realization well, actually we're a lot stronger and collectively we're actually bigger than this so-called farcical g7 nations who all sit there telling the world how they have sustainable economies which are you know, the gdps measured in terms of recycled debt government spending and let's strip out and find the real economic growth and there's next to nothing i mean US GDP in reality, and I'm being actually conservative, is probably 50% of what it, their official published figure, I would argue, is even lower. To strip out, you know, how is $800 billion of government spending on the military beneficial to the US economy? You know, this is just, okay, the, you know, there's some argument to say, well, the military industrial complex benefits, but, you know, but in a broader sense, this government spending is not stimulating economic growth it's just papering over the fact that again and this comes back to the financialization of western economies where we went away from saying what really matters is turning a dollar into a dollar ten or a euro into a from a dollar into a, a euro and ten cents you know where's where's the economic growth where are we producing stuff and which we can actually sell to the rest of the world and generate wealth so we don't run massive budget deficits I mean, the U.S. is projected to have a budget deficit next year of at least 1.8 to 2 trillion. I mean, what was it in February? Their budget deficit was 216 billion. Extrapolate that over a year; it's over 3 trillion. Now, this is totally unsustainable, and this is the big advantage for the global South. It once it trades in non-dollar terms, it has enormous resources. It has enormous growth that it can grow into to grow its economy. You no, know, it's it's a low cost base. I mean, you know, they pay wages, which means they can be economically viable. They can have budget surpluses in the end. They can have trade surpluses in like the West, where we've reached saturation, as we said before, in every aspect of our economy. We've got nowhere to go. And the only way we can be economically competitive in the future is paying Chinese wages. Well, to do that, death just destroys 
very fabric of our society to achieve that objective. So, yeah, it's it's been a long time coming, but but I, I think particularly the Ukraine war has been a real mindset change in the global south where they've gone, actually, we have no choice because we could be the Russia of tomorrow. And if we are, you know, we're not going to have this enormous resource base that supports our economy. We're not energy secure. We're not food secure. And we haven't spent since 2014 changing our economy. So we're internally a lot more dependent. And we can weather being cut off from the Western financial system. These countries don't have the luxury of that. They wouldn't last a week or, or a month if you impose the sanctions that were imposed on Russia. But they're seeing strength in numbers and saying, well, these now we can all work collectively and collectively we, we're a far stronger unit than than the G seven nations and Europe by extension, et cetera. Well, and not only that, I mean, apart from Canada and Australia, they have all the metals. They have all the resources, from yeah. my understanding. So, well, you know, who has the power here? You know, like it's almost like and I think they're waking up to this. Like we see it in Zimbabwe. We see it in the Congo. We're seeing it in Indonesia with, you know, hey, let's create a nickel OPEC. There is a sense that, you know what? Like we got the riches and it's like now they understand it. And not only that, if you guys want our nickel, you have to process it here. Like I've seen story after story of different countries that are demanding that. So there does seem to your point to be a collective kind of, and maybe it was the Ukraine war, as you say, a collective sort of awakening that, you know what, like, what are these guys running on here? Like, you know, like the G7, they're all dictating to us what to do, but, you know, they can't even build a mine. So back to this idea, I mean, what is your understanding? I don't know if you have a kind of wide view understanding of the metals situation. I mean, maybe it's too big of a question, but what is your sense of the metals and the global south and how that relates to, say, the G7? Yeah, it is a big question. We have to kind of pick our way through it, but that's fine. I. I like kind of these left field questions that try to pull ideas together. But look, what do we know? What what am I absolutely aware of? There has been a big move for starting the metals markets, particularly gold will take, of gold moving from west to east. I mean, I've made the point, and I know this because I know the people involved. There is the transparent gold market where officially China has these gold reserves and officially Russia has these gold reserves. And this amount of gold was shipped from Switzerland to China or Switzerland to Turkey or wherever. And then there's the opaque market where there's big players going, I want 50 tons of gold. No one's going to know have any visibility of these transactions. They don't appear on customs forms or anything. There's big business. And, and if you go back to 2012, it's worth reiterating this around 2012 for two and a half years, so 30 months, there was a thousand tons of gold heading from west to east. 30,000 tons, it predominantly went to China and Hong Kong. Now, are we supposed to say that all that gold's still in China and Hong Kong? No, but, but, it's, but it's a lot of it is. Chinese produce 600 metric tons a year. None of it leaves China. But, but And just look at the official figures. It's, it's pretty obvious that China's real gold holdings 
massively north of where they are. It, it's the same with Russia, produces huge amounts of gold. And what does it produce officially? And, and what it actually produces are very different figures, but we only have to look at nations in the last few years, particularly who have been buying enormous amounts of gold. I mean, it, India's not a surprise, there's Turkey, there's all the stand republics, there's nations in, in Southeast Asia. And, and there's definitely been a move to, to move towards buying gold for very obvious reasons. And the whole SVB story is one reason why you should be, you know, I mean, it's not investment advice, but you might want to consider what assets you want to hold. So, so in a broad sense, there's, there's a big move in the global south. I mean, the Chinese and the Russians, and particularly Russia since the start of the Ukraine war, is encouraging people where they can to buy gold. Chinese are being, you know, the Indians do this. This is very self-evident. So there has been, to some extent, in Europe, and we know that the, the, the Poles have been buying gold, That's a, and that's their state's intention. But most European nations don't buy gold. In fact, any gold they have, they sell it. And But there is this gigantic move from, from west to east. That's a, a statement of the obvious. And it's just a very different mindset where in the west, we're constantly trying to still convince ourselves that our fiat monetary system works fine. What's the problem? Well, what what it's not a question of what's the problem. What isn't the problem? I mean, it's all, I mean, demonstrating quite clearly that it's the end of the line, it's the end of the road. And therefore, any nation that, that with with a brain cell in its head would be looking at this going, you know, we need to 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 invest in in gold and precious metals. I mean, we saw the Indians buy. 10,000 metric tons or more of silver last year, Chinese the year before that. I mean, so there is this enormous demand that not only do they produce stuff in, in the global south, and this is the thing, if you get investment and you can hold the West at arm's length and you nationalize certain industries, which I think even Mexico is threatening to do or trying to do, it's this idea we can protect our assets. We can get investment from the Chinese or whoever that will help us do exploration, get into production, build mines, and and then we have the capability, in, you know, because we have enormous resources that we can then help each other. It will, and okay, we may ultimately at some point sell these resources to the West, but I mean, it, it becomes a situation: what are they going to sell to each other, and what's the price they're going to sell to the West? There's going to be two very different markets. The West doesn't have those resources, that's self-explanatory. You know, this idea, let's stick it to the Chinese and stop Chinese imports. Well, here's a here's a sort of bombshell for people. In terms of GDP, China's exports to Russia is only 2.5% of China's GDP. It's irrelevant. And what's happening, that's decreasing. And what's the big market for their exports now? The global south, the Asian nation. It's it's growing exponentially. They're rotating their market away from the West. And yet there wow. are, I'm not saying there's not gold mining or other mining opportunities that exist in the West, but look at Iran. We know Iran's got massive resources. It's never publicly acknowledged things. Not, not just the obvious oil and gas. It has enormous gold reserves. I've heard figures it has 20,000 tons of gold. I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. But look at it. There was this very quiet announcement the other day that, in fact, 
suddenly Iran's has got massive lithium deposits. Well, it's not just lithium, it's all resources. And therefore, you know, increasingly you're seeing that the global south has all these resources. I mean, in terms of G7 nations, what resources do we have? And and what's ironically the Chinese doing, the Indians, etc., and other nations? They're buying up all our whatever whatever gold, silver we we have in the West. They're sucking it all to the east. They're draining us of, of resources because we don't think gold's important. We think it's irrelevant or a barbarous relic or whatever else our perception is. And so not only do they have this huge resource base and it's growing and and they're now able to, to you know, how I mean, why is Iran not been exploiting its lithium deposits? Because it doesn't have the investment because of sanctions. Now it's going, hey, we can have investment because we're outside the dollar system. You know, maybe the Chinese come in and help us build this. Maybe China gets a whole bunch of lithium and and then we can sell it. Maybe eventually Iran creates its own spot market in lithium. You know, these these I'm okay, we're, we're talking hypothetically in that sense, but these are the developments. And it is true if you look and collectively pull the global south with resources and how it, it could achieve total resource, you know, dependency beyond built on cooperation with each other, energy dependent, it can be food dependent. I mean, if you if we start to look at the potential of of how you could you could extrapolate growth in agricultural sector in the global south. It's enormous, and this is the big point. If and it becomes this ecosystem that will be will become self sufficient. Where does the West fit into this? Because the West, I mean, has spent hundreds of years with colonialism, neo-colonialism, trying to exploit these parts of the world, and they're now reaching the point. We saw uh, Macron went to Africa, and he was trying to dictate and talk like a child to, to the Congo leader. And he just turned around in this very public statement and basically said, excuse me, you know, I'm paraphrasing, who the hell do you think you're talking to? We're not putting up with this anymore. Don't speak to us like that. You know, we, we're seeing these where the African nations go, we've had enough of your now neo-colonialism and you come to us with no, no offers to help or no desire to cooperate. You just come here lecturing us about how bad China is. Meanwhile, look at what China's actually done for us. So go away. If you want to work with us, fine, but if you're going to treat us like like a latter-day colonial uh, entity or, or nation, we're not, we, we don't want anything to do with you. So there comes a point where you know the West is just disintegrating economically, financially. We've seen the problems that the the sanctions boomerang on the West, what it's doing to industrialization, like in Germany, for example. And you know, the United States, for all its bluster, is in serious decline economically, financially. And, and obviously, if, if the one thing that propped it up for decades was the dollar and, and the rest of the world increasingly doesn't trade in dollar terms, then what happens? I mean, does there come a point as well? And the SVB thing, which we'll come to, is very important in a broader context because they're effectively saying we're backstopping everything in the US financial system. The rest of the world's going to get to the point where it goes, there's not a question if Russia and India trades in non-dollar terms. India might turn around to the United States and go, you know, given what you're doing, we don't, we're, we're not going to accept dollars anymore. Now, people will go, this will never happen, but 
It's like all the other things that were never going to happen that have been happening. This is the problem. So, yeah, you it's a great question. It's a huge question. And we could probably talk for hours and hours. But but in terms of, of the resource base, in terms of gold and silver and production, there's no comparison between the G7 and obviously the global south. But it's not just in terms because we know Switzerland's a big kind of uh, hub for, for where metals end up, but it's all been sold to the, to the east, to the global south. There's, there's very little staying in the west. So the things we need to be hanging on to, we're dumping. And in alienating 70, 80% of the world's population, or even more, 88% actually, that you know, the, in the future, we're going to have to build strong relationships in a multipolar world, then what are we doing? We're antagonizing them. We're irritating them. And it's like Europe. Russia's rotating its energy to the global south. They're rubbing their hands with glee, going, finally, we get cheap energy. Well, what's Europe going to get? Where does Europe get its cheap energy from? Because Russia says, well, we've re reached our production quota. We're now selling it to our new friends. You're not a friend. We're not selling it to you anymore. So what... And then it comes back to the point, they're sat there going, well, we're getting all this energy from the United States. Well, yes, you are, but here's the problem. You're paying five times the cost. And, by the way, shale oil and gas is, is, looks like it's, it's peaked in the United States. It's, it's in decline. So what are you going to do in five years' time? If you thought about five years, bearing in mind in Western politics, they only think five minutes. And what do I need to say? that sounds good, makes me look good, and and hopefully no one will see reality, but, you know, it secures me another five years in office. That's all they're interested in, politicians, is staying in office. Well, we get into the point where they're not going to be able to stay in office based on just vacuous platitudes because reality is playing out, and eventually someone's going to turn around in Europe and go, well, when do we get rid of inflation associated with energy? Where am I going to buy cheap energy from? I mean, they don't even answer these questions because they're so ideologically driven on destroying Russia, they've forgotten the bigger picture. Hence why they didn't think sanctions would boomerang on them, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I know it's a great question, but we're seeing this, this huge resource developing in the global south, and we're seeing you know, global south players draining the west of gold and silver and and, and any other asset they can get their hands on, which is why, you know, if you're going to threaten the world and weaponize the dollar, if you've got dollars, you're either going to buy gold and silver, or particularly gold for sovereign nations, or you're going to do what the Chinese do and go get rid of the dollars, yeah, and let's buy assets up around the world. And if we can get a bunch of assets in the West, great. Let's cherry pick and buy up the things, ports and, and viable industries. And, you know, and by the way, you know, we have a nice low energy cost um, environment for you to function in. So Germany, bring all your businesses to us because you know what? You're going to have, you know, reliable energy sources and contrary to popular wisdom for the next 200 years because Russia can, has got that much oil and gas, so is Iran and, and, and other nations who, who are now in a position where they begin to go, well, we can... We can produce more hydrocarbons. And it's just it's just self-explanatory. And meanwhile, the West sat there still going, but remember, we're the hegemonic power. 
you know, to use that awful phrase, we're in the garden and you're in the jungle. I mean, wh what an absolutely outrageous statement to make. I mean, was there no recognition on well, having said that? Do you just realize what you have done to the perception of the West in the minds of the global South? You, you fed everything into what the Chinese and the Russians have been telling you for years. This is how they perceive you. And all we do is see these threatening images. And again, it's just not accepting the world's moving on. The world in the global South doesn't need us anymore, doesn't want us as we are. But, you know, if we change our attitudes and we can build trust, they'll bring us into the fold. And ultimately, that will be enormously beneficial because Europe needs cheap energy. Well, how is it going to get cheap energy if it sanctions Russia into oblivion? It sanctions Iran into oblivion. You know, it, it doesn't want to cooperate. Where is it going to get the cheap energy from? Because Iran produces oil at $2 a barrel. I mean, so the rest of the global south's going... This is, you know, you can ramp up production. Why do we think the Chinese are investing in all aspects of Iranian energy? Because they mm -hmm. can, the Iranians have the scope to produce massive more amounts of oil. Also, investing gas brings their, you know, their gas into play in the markets. Is it LNG? Maybe pipelines, etc. You know, let's say you build a huge pipeline from Iran and it goes in somewhere into Africa. You know, the, 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 or into into other parts of, of Asia. You know, this just is the thought process the West is just not paying attention to because fundamentally, and this is the big failing point, we look at China and Russia and go, they, it's the 1980s they're still. They're communist nations. They're run by dictators. They, you know, they don't produce anything. Russia's a gas station with nukes. China's just sells crappy goods. And if if we cut them off, China's finished. This is just this kind of myopic indoctrination that, that a lot of Western people, never mind politicians and think tanks and analysts believe, people in the West believe this to be true. And I'm sorry, it's nonsense. And anyone who's been to China and Russia, and I have, sees the reality. These nations are not the way we've been told or perceived to be. And we need to start realizing that, you know, that this has actually detrimental effects on us as in the West if we continue to adopt this philosophy that it's it's all our confrontation with both of these nations. Yeah, we have fundamental disagreements, I don't doubt it, and some of them can be justified. But if we think that we're going to crush a nation out of existence on the basis because uh, because that's our you know given right to do that, then we have to start to go, hang on, well, if it's failed with Russia, and we literally threw everything at Russia and it's failed, what's, and why is it failed? And, and, and start to assess and understand why it's also had a boomerang effect on us. But we're not thinking about that because it's what empires do. And even when empires are in terminal decline, which the West is, it still believes in its own hubris. It believes in its own arrogance and its ignorance. and and ultimately, it's hugely detrimental to us. And the boomerang effect on Russian sanctions is one example of that. Well, it seems like it's always coming back to this credibility issue that, you know, for example, it's like we look at, I don't know if you saw that maybe three months ago, I think I saw a story where they were building a natural gas pipeline in Sudan and the European Commission was 
criticizing them and saying you shouldn't be doing that for environmental reasons. And then meanwhile, like they're, you know, redoing coal in Germany. So, I mean, it's back to this credibility issue from my perspective that it's like at a certain point, like, and, and it seems like, you know, you're talking about Macron there. It seems like it, there's a kind of lack of self-awareness in the West and maybe that's just my take on it and maybe I'm wrong, you know, and maybe they've got it all figured out. But I think the global South, like they see what I see, which is a lack of credibility and a lack of self-awareness. And to your point, like they're just kind of fed up of being lectured to. And it was, I don't know if it was from Uganda or Sudan that some foreign minister came out and was calling it neocolonialism. And it's just so ironic because so many of these, you know, Western elites are the ones who are trying to preach that we're, you know, against colonialism. And then meanwhile, so at a certain point, like reality has to kind of intrude here, it seems to me. Yeah, well, I've made the point for the last few years that reality is going to crush the illusion and increasingly reality is crushing the illusion. But you're right, it is a lack of self-awareness. It's also, you know, a lack of arrogance, ignorance. But, you know, these politicians have grown up in an environment where they may be made to feel that, you know, everything we do is justified. We're doing it for the good of the world because, you know, these China and Russia are dictatorships. They are aggressive. They, they're threatening our values because they're aggressive. And then the global South nations going, they're not aggressive towards us. Yes, they are. And we're going to continue to tell you they're aggressive. And they're going, but they're not. This is our, our reality. And most of the Western's perception of these nations is they're aggressive. They're trying to have US and Germany 2.0. And I mean, and it's it's just nothing could be further from the truth. This isn't saying China and Russia are a perfect nation. It's a point, though, how they treat the rest of the world. Is is poles or light years away from how we treat the rest of the world, and that's the fundamental difference. When it's like you know, and look at Africa. I mean, you have Mali and the Central African Republic who requested Russia goes in, okay, to the Wagner Group to to deal with terrorism threats. They kicked the French out, said go, leave. You're not helping us resolve the problem. Uh, and the Russians go in, they're helping them to resolve the problem. That's not colonialism. That's, we've got a problem. We need someone in the West to help us. And these African nations know full well who's backing all this terrorism. It's the West. They know the West is trying to destabilize their nations. And look at Syria, the Syrian war. You know, it was obviously the West was behind all the conflict to try and overthrow Assad. The Russians went in in 2015. And it changed the whole course of the war, and and it and largely, um, Syria is, from a war perspective, it's it's peaceful. Okay, it's got economic problems, etc., but which is largely because the the United States is has the Caesar Act trying to crush them uh, economically, financially, and starve the Syrians into submission, and it's not working either. But the point is. The Global South looked at this and went, hang on, there was a problem there. The Russians went in, they've alleviated most of the problems. They're now, you've now got to the point when the Turks are now talking about sitting down with the, the, the Assad government and saying, okay, we'll leave Syria on this basis. Okay, we need some security guarantees. 
how are we going to resolve this problem? And that's the big difference. They're seeing the reality. And the West continues to tell us a version which is an illusion of what is really going on in the world. And, and it really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we want to believe to be true. Reality is playing out, and reality will always crush the illusion. And if you keep believing in the illusion, then the longer this goes on, the worse the, the, the effects are in terms of on a national basis, but in a regional basis and an individual basis. We have to start to accept some very uncomfortable realities of how the West behaves in the world, what we have done, what we didn't do when we should have done it, and start to say, okay, whether we, it doesn't mean we have to agree, but we have to accept that huge parts of the world are embracing the Chinese and the Russians. And instead of saying they're doing it because they're threatening these nations, perhaps they're not threatening these nations. And why are these nations embracing them? You know, because, and the idea, I mean, this is the hilarious part of this. And, the, and where the absurdity of the contradictions, we keep being told that China's on the verge of collapse. I mean, this has gone on every year for the last 20 years. We're told that Russia's on the, the verge of collapsing. But in the meantime, the hegemonic powers who are building empires in the world will make up your mind, which is it? Are they collapsing or building an empire? And people don't look at the massive contradiction and go, sorry, that can't be true. It can't be both of these things. And, and this is the, the fundamental problem that we're going to continually have to address in the West. And for the longer our governments and similar institutions adopt this philosophy, the longer the problem is that we do become integrated in a rapidly changing world, which I've always made the point. The United States being a great nation amongst equals and recognizing that fact and being cooperative and trustworthy will be enormously beneficial to the world. That's that's a statement of the obvious, but at the moment, it's nothing like that. It's the exact you know, opposite to that. That is going to be a huge problem until for the West, until it accepts the new reality and goes, okay, it's over. We're not going to be this hegemonic power anymore. We have to accept the new reality, but at the moment, they're in denial. There are some people privately going, yes, there are big changes. We don't like it. But we're accepting that the world is is changing fundamentally and that China and Russia are offering an alternative that the world, large parts of the world, actually sign up to. And, and in terms of Europe, most of European reality signs up to the Chinese ideal of how we do business. They're very happy with it. They're not they're not very keen on the United States dictating to them. And in the process, some of them are starting to realize through the Ukraine more the United States is trying to benefit from gutting Europe gutting itself through Russian sanctions. And they're not very happy about that either. Well, bringing it back to metals a little bit, since you brought it to Europe here, what's your understanding of what's going on at the London Metals Exchange? I mean, it seems like it was quite interesting. For example, I mean, Alcoa seemed to be lobbying the LME to not take Russian metal. And then the LME seemed to decide, well, this isn't a good idea. And for whatever reason, they decided not to. They voted against it, as far as I understand how they work that process over there. 
But then within like a few months here, I think there's going to be like a, I don't know if it's 200%, but a, an enormous tariff on Russian aluminum coming into the US. And Alcoa came out and said how great they think that is. And I'll bring it back to the LME in a second, but it, it seems to muddy the waters though, because it's back to, and I think I mentioned this with you on a previous podcast, is this idea of, you know, acting out of expediency. Because as Alcoa, like it wasn't clear to me from their statements, it seems to me that it was more out of expediency than out of any sort of moral clarity that these things were taking place. So I don't know, do you have any thoughts on, say, what's happening at the LME and what's your understanding of what's happening there? Okay, you make the great, we had, you know, going back, and we don't need to repeat the whole nickel debacle at the end, uh, Alan. The issue is, it's one of these situations where people are caught between trying to make political statements and political statements based on, on ideology, which says, well, Russia started the Ukraine war, which they did. Russia invaded Ukraine, which they did. And therefore, we, we have to, to do everything we can in our power to cripple Russia economically, financially, and try to remove Putin in the process. Of course, it's all failed, unsurprisingly. So the situation is, okay, we have to do everything we can. That means we're going to cut off markets that, that Russia can benefit from, in the very looser sense of the word. So, yeah, if, if we don't allow Russia to sell aluminium, or metals to the LME, we're going to stick it to Russia. Of course, the, and there is political reasons for doing this. And to be, you know, not pointing the finger at individuals, but it looks like, you know, we're being tough on Russia, we're sanctioning Russia. And no wonder the LME at the time went, hang on a minute. If you start cutting off supplies of aluminium, well, or any other metal, you, you could cause another problem like nickel in our markets. Do you not realize this is very bad for business? This, the, the optics look horrendous. And, you know, you might take other nations in the future who aren't sanctioned, who might say, do you know what? I'm not selling it to this market because, A, I, I, I might lose the market. Right? They might, someone might issue an edict out of Washington that means we have to be sanctioned. So, based that, you know, you're adding credence to the fact that what Indonesia said, well, well let's, let's set up our own market place for this very reason. Uh, the other problem is, yeah, the old tariffs thing. I don't think people seem to grasp with tariffs. You can put 200% on Russian aluminium, but it doesn't affect Russia. It just creates price inflation in the West. We pay more, ultimately, at source. Not source, uh, you know, okay, the, the US government might be pocketing some money. But at the end of the day, if suddenly you know a, a ton of aluminium costs 200% more, what's that going to do for the, the people who utilize aluminium in production processes? It's, you create price inflation. And it doesn't harm the Russians in this because Russia will just find an alternative market and they'll sell it like they have done with oil, like they have done with gas and other resources. They, they're not, it's not penalizing. So the LME stance was correct, but I think some of it is, you know, I think it just is born out of, you, you're right, expediency, this idea, I know, how can we harm Russia? Let's do this. And, you know, and in certain quarters politically, people don't read between the lines. They just see a statement going, yes, I support my government because this is harming Russia. Well, is it harming Russia? 
Is it harming us? What does it do to metals markets? What does it do to our credibility internationally? I mean, it's very damaging if you have end up having in the future repeat episodes of aluminium and nickel, if it's aluminium or whatever the metals or resource, you know, the, the or other metals. This is a huge perception problem. So again, this is where it's like German business. German business is screaming at the West, going, look. This is, these sanctions are unsustainable. We can't function without cheap energy. Well, uh, you know, this is, you know, we have to keep these sanctions going. And, you know, politically, it's very damaging for us if we backtrack on this. So politicians and their desire to stay in power and in office are destroying economies, not realizing that ultimately that's going to destroy their political career. So to save their political career, they're burning the house down. <laughs> which is destroying their political career. But they, it's expediency. They just think in the mind. This has good optics, but, but the damage for for the likes of the LME in terms of what it does to their business, what it does to their credibility, and the risk is, you know, I mean, understanding how metals markets operates in the West and, and if we start to have problems with physical delivery, what does that have in a broader sense? I mean, you know, if you get a repeat of LME and nickel, then it gives credence to, to the Chinese who are obviously setting up commodities markets. I mean, there's the Shanghai Gold Exchange, there's the Shanghai Silver Exchange. You can now trade in the Petro Yuan fully convertible to gold, despite people in the West saying this is rubbish. You're just encouraging the global South who service these markets in a broader sense to go, well, actually, We'll set up our own market and we'll have our own spot price. And and we and we'll set up something that is deemed to be viable, trustworthy. And in the West, in the process, the West just cutting its or slitting its own throat. So I don't doubt the LME correctly fully understand the ramification. But there are, you know, politicians, there are think tanks who are thinking purely on in the moment political decisions that make us look good. That means the electorate will revert, will vote us in next time with no understanding of the ramifications of doing this and how ultimately, as I said, they think they're saving their political careers by burning the house down, not realizing they are burning the house down because it's all in the moment thought processes. It's like you're going to sanction Russia. Right? If someone had sat me down and said, OK, what's your perception on this? As I said, on day one of the war. If the West implements these sanctions, it will collapse. And I would have sat down with these politicians and told them exactly what would have happened by implementing sanctions. But at the end of the day, they don't care. But they, they think that this was never going to happen because they, you know, because they just believe in this ideology. They have this mindset that that can't happen. We're the West. We'll always triumph. We'll crush Russia. Not, well, what happens if that doesn't happen? And of course, they're now stirring down the barrel of the gun, realizing that this isn't one of these things where Western politicians go, we're going to roll this out in 20 years' time or 10 years, knowing they're not even going to be in political office. There's no accountability. We're now in the phase of there is permanently going forward going to be accountability for political decisions and Western uh, Industry, trade, commerce is screaming at them, going, we can't do this. Do you realize the damage you're doing to our business, our reputation, 
our credibility, our standing in dealing. You know, yeah, do you realise where our supplies come from? Do you realise now this nation won't supply us with macaroni because they found an alternative which is trustworthy? And also, you know, that they might be in a position where they could sell, you know, their, their commodity at a better price because they're not getting manipulated by Western markets as well. So it's just self-inflicted madness, frankly. It's back to that credibility issue. And it seems like there's a lot of red flags. I mean, just to wrap this up, the LME issue last year and kind of there was a zinc issue overnight. That, I don't know if you heard about that maybe a month or two ago. It was like an overnight zinc price that's got up. You know, you have Silicon Valley Bank. And I mean, it almost does seem like we're kind of getting some what I would call significant red flags that are popping up just here every six months, maybe every three months, you know, every six months on the LME, some sort of weird story. So I don't know if there's even that much more to say, Paul. I mean, I think you've outlined it quite beautifully. I mean, do you have any closing thoughts for us on red flags or anything else that we should be thinking about? Yeah, you're absolutely right. They're all increasing red flags. I mean, we, you know, just to, to put this in the context of US Treasury markets, it's abundantly clear there's been enormous dumping of U.S. Treasuries across the entire yield curve. Hence why, look at 12 months ago, the yields on the one month through to the 30 year. Now, they're trying to hide the fact and claim, you know, oh, there isn't a problem with, you know, there's the Treasury markets, they're very illiquid. There are huge structural problems. And the fact Powell came out and actually felt the need to say the other day, there is no alternative as a world reserve currency to the dollar was basically him saying we're in serious trouble because if your hegemony power, if your dollar is predominant, you wouldn't even need to say that. He's saying that because he's trying to convince others that the threat to dollar supremacy isn't a problem. Well, it clearly is a problem. We, you know, and then this constantly dismissing the idea that Nothing's bad for the dollar. If you know if nations trading on dollar terms, it's not a problem. So it is. It's perception management. But they keep. You know, we're seeing events like in the army. We're seeing events announced in the global south. We're seeing deindustrialization happening in the west. We're seeing the problems that with inflation. Well, you know, for Germany, inflation, food. I think it was nearly twenty-two percent in February year on year. You know, these are tangible realities where. You know, the illusions giving way to reality. So, yeah, it, I think that's fundamentally the point. And I, I said this ironically during the pandemic when they basically bailed out the entire West. If you need money, join the queue. You know, no matter who you are, we'll just throw money at you. And I said that's the point when the illusion gives way to reality in a, in a very rapid sense because you've turned the problem from being financialized and asset bubbles you can control uh, to a large extent you put it in Main Street then everything changes and we're in the everything changes moment so yeah and you know again we are going to continue to see these problems I mean we had FTX now we've had SVB and I mean and okay we have to be careful about extrapolating what that means but we're seeing more and more. We've had financial episodes, the repo crisis in 2019. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that keep rearing their head, and they're trying to paper over it with absolute nonsensical policy decisions. 
I mean, and we, we're going to talk about SBB and, and why, you know, as effectively, to, in, in reality, they came out with the Fed and the FDIC and others by saying, we're going to backstop the entire US banking system because if we do it for SVB, we'll talk about that, we're going to have to do it for everything. I mean, I mean, if that's not the biggest indicator of enormous problems that exist in the Western financial system, I don't know what does. I mean, and, and that, again, is a credibility issue. You know, they can all slap each other on the back claiming we've solved the problem. But, you know, this, again, is going to make nations in the global south, even nations inside, uh, you know, Europe, et cetera, looking at this going, hang on a minute, we're going to have to start thinking differently about our trust in the Western financial system because, you know, if you just intend to bail everything out, well, you know, how big's the US financial system? It's difficult, but 20 odd trillion? Well, what, we're going to potentially bail it all out if we have to. I mean, and, and what does that mean in, in a broader set? Not just credibility, what does that do to in terms of our financial system? I mean, does it come back to my point earlier where nations start to say to the United States, do you know what? Your, your, your financial system is just a joke. I'm sorry, we don't want your dollars anymore. If you want to trade with us, sorry, we're not taking dollars. Because why would we want to take part in a financial system and support it when your idea, whenever there's a problem, nothing can fail and we just bail everything out, no matter what the consequences are. Because again, we're the West and it, it, you know we've got away with it since 2008. I mean, we'll continue to get away. But they only get away with it while the world accepted the dollar. And as soon as the world rejects the dollar, which increased in the case of the US now, that's why it printed $4 trillion in the aftermath of the pandemic, because the world was rejecting the dollar. No one would buy the debt. I mean, this is Weimar territory. You know, you're just printing trillions to bail everything by more Germany. So we have this situation going on with the Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, it's the topic du jour. It is what's happening right now. Gold is up here at $1,900, silver up four and a half percent. Seems like a great place to be right now. What is your understanding of this situation? Can you tell us anything about it? Yeah, let's, I mean, let's not get too exhaustive on this, but in a broad sense, what happened to Silicon Valley? Why did it end up in trouble? Well, it what effect if you amounted to a bank run? Now, obviously, as we know, when banks have deposits, they're liabilities, so they want instead of, so they try to, to convert those liabilities into assets. So obviously, they bought huge amounts of treasuries and we know what's happened to the treasury market oh bonds are worth a fraction of what they are and because suddenly there was a lot of people moving capital out of the bank we know the technology sectors had a difficult 12 months or so um what happened is obviously in the process of uh, that you know they couldn't you know uh, raise additional finance because effectively as people needed money they had to effectively liquidate um, U.S. Treasuries. They made a loss on this. And it's this cascading effect, and, you know, withdrawing deposits eventually, you know, there has to be a point where you go, hang on a minute, and the drawbridge was drawn up. 
and effectively they were declared insolvent and then they fell under the purview of the FDIC and obviously there was discussion then with the Federal Reserve and US Treasury, etc. I mean, that's in very broad terms. And part of the reason why there was this withdrawal uh, from the bank, you know, you know, Silicon Valley Bank has a lot of high net worth individuals, businesses, and because deposits are only insured up to 250,000, it probably accelerated people shifting money out of the bank. One of those things, it can happen very easily. Doesn't mean necessarily the fundamentals of the bank are a problem. But, you know, if you're selling uh, bonds at a loss and then you're trying to plug the gap and they tried to raise $2 billion because of the loss in their portfolio and they couldn't raise the money then, you know what it's like, very quickly things can spiral out of control. Now, obviously, the concern with this I, is not so much what's the contagion effect of this spreading from SVB to another bank. In a broader context, it's an issue of, well, Imagine if banks have similar problems or something non-related, then they have to liquidate assets, meaning treasuries, and they then crystallize enormous losses. And we do know currently that U.S. financial institutions are underwater to the tune, and this was the end of December, but it was $620 billion. Now it could be because yields have risen, okay, the last few days, We've seen a bit of a fall in the yields, but that's a separate subject. But is it $650 billion? Quite likely. Well, the issue then is, well, what happens if other institutions suddenly, and, and suddenly you know, people in banks are going, hang on, maybe my bank could become the next SVB. And, start, and everyone starts pulling money out of banks. You can have this cascading effect of bank failures, just purely on, in psychological terms. Um, and that, you know, in a broad sense, I mean, there's a lot of nuance to this, but I'm sure people, if they want to, can, can find this out for themselves. I don't want to labor too much on, you know, there's a lot of backstories and, and in a broad sense, you know, what we've discussed highlights, you know, why in, in the recent climate, this is the point, is U.S. bonds are not a safe investment. I mean, if you bought long-term treasuries a, a year ago, like two-year, five-year, seven-year, ten-year, whatever. Now you're sat on these unrealized losses. So unfortunately, from their perspective, because, you know, I mean, obviously with the tech sector being what it was, the downturn, uh, you know, people started moving money out. Now, ordinarily, that's not a problem, but it becomes a problem when you, you stack up all these factors. I'm not going to get into the politics of the company, and of course, there's all these stories about what's going on, and and yet they're interesting, but for the purpose of what we're discussing, less so. So the question then becomes: Okay, what's what's the reaction of this from the FDIC? Because the claim was there's about two hundred and two hundred ten billion dollars of assets, but one hundred and fifty billion or so was unsecured, meaning above this two hundred fifty thousand threshold, which the FDIC secures bank deposits. Um, so therefore, you know, the, the, I think there's a certain political question to this. I mean, you know, if these are high net worth individuals, we need to find a solution for this. Now in the UK, SVB is UK subsidiary. I haven't read the details beyond that time, sold 
that subsidiary to HSBC for a for a pound. Okay, and we're not unsure. Have to look in the future into the details of that and what the proposal is. But as far as the US was concerned, and this is the kind of farcical nature of it, they came out with a statement which, you know, there's no bailout, you know, we're not bailing them out, but the US government took the step to, to stop what was termed a potential banking crisis. Now, okay, there are certainly reasons to, to be concerned that the perception might be, well, this bank's, you know, maybe people start withdrawing deposits, maybe there's concerns about the, how underwater they are holding US treasuries. But they said, well, we will backstop effectively, not bail out, but backstop all depositors so they could all access their money. You know, And what does that mean? Well, from that perspective, that means we are going to backstop $150 billion of, of basically uninsured uh, deposits. That, you know, okay, it might sound all great, and they'll sell it. We're saving businesses. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're protecting employees and we're doing the right thing. But largely, this is about protecting huge investors. It's about protecting, dare I use that awful term, the 1%. It's not the 1%, but, you know, it's protecting the, the high net worth individuals and institutions. And, but in a broader sense, if you extrapolate that across the entire US financial sector, which what, what is it? Okay, forget what it should be worth in reality, but it's 22, 25 trillion. The size of it. By making this announcement, you set a precedent that says we are in the future. We, meaning the Fed, the US Treasury, and the FDIC, we're, we're now prepared to bail out the entire US banking system, no matter what. Because, you know, we can't go and say, well, we saved. SVB and we saved all the uninsured deposits, but this other bank, sorry, we're just going to let you go and and all we don't care about you and your uninsured deposits. You're just going to be fried in the process of this. But of course, there are enormous losses in paper terms, not crystallized across the entire financial system, hence back to the 650 billion thing. I mean, and so therefore, this is as much going. Telling that the message, you know, if you fail, don't worry, we'll we'll bail you out. But in terms of credibility, you know, this is this is now turning the United States financial agencies and the United States financial system. Its credibility is gone. It looks like the laughing stock of the world because it's saying nothing will ever be allowed to fail. Uh, you know, we will bail everything out. So what happens if? You know, the, the entire bond market continues to crater and these losses have to be realized. Is the U.S. going to step in every time and say to people, well, we'll protect, you know, your uninsured uh, assets. You know, what happens if the next bank, it's 200 billion? I mean, where does this end? You, you know, and, and in the end, it's just, and, and they're going, oh, but this doesn't affect the taxpayer seriously. Well, where's this magic money coming from? you're going to bail out. Bear in mind, the FDIC in only has about 130 billion. Uh, so you would arguably say that entire budget's gone just on the on SBA, uh, SVB. Sorry. So where where does it end? I mean, it's like going printing money has no consequences. Well, we've seen what printing money has consequences. We've seen what QE and zero interest rate policy is 
created asset bubbles and just created this financial illusion that has serious damaging effects in the real world that most of us live in, not these people working in, in, in government agencies and the Fed, etc. We seem to be immune to, to living in the real world like the rest of us. So it's such a hugely bad precedent. I mean, and people will sit there and go, oh, but they saved all these, you know, these um, venture capitalists. They saved all these tech companies, uh, you know, in the process. But, but the problem is, is in doing that, it sets this very dangerous precedent. Uh, you know, and um, and what you know, the so-called too big to fail, it becomes too everything to fail, and it just set it just sets a very bad tone. It the optics look horrendous, and and it, and if nations in the global south were everywhere are saying, do we buy U.S. Treasuries? And look at this going. What's the point? Why are we going to invest in something when you know, and when tomorrow, you know the. Things could go bust, and are they going to protect us? Is there any, you know, is there any protection in place for us? I mean, why do we want to take all the risk? And and it's sending this precedent. You can realize all the benefits, and you just accept no risk. You know, it's like if you have, I don't know, a hundred million dollars uh, of cash, don't stick it in one financial institution. You know, spread the risk around. This is risk management. I mean, we have no risk management in the West anymore. It's it's farcical. Well, that's what was so shocking for me when I saw that story. I, I thought, like, I, I know this. You know, I'm not a CFO of some, you know, startup or larger company. And when I see, you know, that, that or even there was all sorts of individual depositors who had sounded like who had millions and millions of dollars in their bank account. and to your point, like, I mean, and maybe I'm sure it's actually quite a hard thing to do to manage all that money, right? And and to, you know, but I mean, to put all your eggs in one basket like that, it, it, to me, it was kind of shocking. So, you know, and here they've put this backstop, which seems like a substitute word for bailout, but, you know, everybody gets their money, but it's not a bailout. Okay. Uh, I guess the shareholders get wiped out. That's the difference between a backstop and a bailout. But I, I'm assuming... But it just, again, it always comes back to this idea, which I think you've kind of beautifully put, this idea of the credibility is being sacrificed on the altar of expediency, Paul. And, and the, here we are again, you know. Yeah, but here's, here's the tallying point as we're talking. Barclays share price is down over 5%. Credit Suisse down 13.5%. I mean, I haven't looked. But generally, it seems despite all these reassurances, which actually is all sounds great in principle, but you know the, the the reality is, you know, I mean, yeah, okay, Goldman's is down two percent, less of a perception problem from their perspective. J.P. Morgan's down about two percent. Okay, so clearly those banks deem to be more risky, and we've 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 seen concerns about uh, Credit Suisse. This is not something new. Uh, given you know all the ongoing stats. Problems. It's interesting. Deutsche Bank's down at six and a half percent. So banks. I was just wondering, what's Deutsche Bank doing? <laughs> yeah, perceived to be risky. Yeah, you know, there's there's obviously concern. Hang on a minute. You know, what does this mean in a broader in a broader sense? But what is this telegraphing? And it's forget SVB for a second. Forget what happened with them and what led us to this position. What this is effectively saying. We could have 
a huge bank with enormous assets on its books, that in the future we're going to go, well, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter what happened. It didn't matter if they made bad decisions in terms of their business. They took risks. We'll just bail it out. I mean, and, and, and the question is, if, if for me, would be, you know, what's going on? I mean, I understand the way the system works in that if banks get deposits, their liabilities fall. Fair enough. I mean, that's how, how it works. And then they go, we don't want there to be liabilities, so we want to remove some of that liability and we want to invest in assets. So, okay, <clears throat> you want to invest in treasuries. And historically, that's been a pretty sound move. But now it's not a sound. And, and therefore, you know, the, the question is, is how leveraged are in, I'm not picking on SVB, I'm talking in a broad sense. What's the leverage? And that, that's in this, that they, you know, again, you know, it's like, well, is it 10 to 1, 20 to 1? I mean, we don't know. So this is effectively telegraphing. You can take all the risk you like, don't worry about it, but you can reap all the benefits if it works out well. But there are always consequences for this. You can't just dismiss this and go, well, it doesn't matter, there are no consequences. Because they can say we're not bailing them out, but who's funding in the future if there is another SVB in it and there's a hundred you know billion dollars of uninsured deposits and someone has to who's footing the bill for this? I mean, who's paying for this? How do they finance this? They're just gonna magically produce money out of thin air like they do. I mean, and what does that do to the treasury markets? What does that do to the perception of, of, of a treasury market? I mean, if, you know, because if the Fed's going to just bail everything out ad infinitum, this questions the very fundamental basis of why you'd want to hold dollars. Why would you want to hold your treasury? I mean, if I was sat there now as a sovereign nation, with treasuries, I'd be going, just get rid of them. I mean, because we just, we're in totally uncharted waters. I mean, and this is what, you know, this will, is why, you know, we, we're seeing, okay, it remains to be seen, but there's been a big move out of the US dollar into the Chinese US. So the, the dollar's fallen over about 1.3, 1.4%. I mean, interestingly, nearly a 2% fall in the US dollar against the yen. You know, even the euro against the dollars up half a percent. So the immediate reaction to this news is a huge move into gold and silver. The dollar index, which is largely meaningless, is, is basically flatlining. I don't know quite how it's flatlining given that the U.S. dollar. It's the, it's the, it's the Canadian dollar that's probably falling through the floor, Paul. Yes, okay, yeah, but in waiting terms, it's basically... <laughs> I'm yeah, joking. I'm joking. Yeah, but yeah. No, it's probably not a joke. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's like I see my exchange rate here, Paul. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> okay. So but the, the, the point is, is we're looking at this and, you know, equities rightly are getting hit. I mean, okay, the, the Dow is down a percent. Uh, but, but the reality is, is there's a reaction in the banking sector. Negatively, there's a positive reaction for gold and silver. In, and what we're seeing this big move out of the dollar into other currencies, what the immediate reaction is and would have been, logically, everyone would in the historically would have gone, there's a, there's a financial event, there's a crisis, 
everyone piles into treasuries, everyone dumps currencies and buys dollars. Now, I haven't looked at the treasury markets, admittedly. I don't know what's going on there. But, I mean, the final point worth making, yeah, what does the Fed do with regards right. to raising interest rates? Because by bailing everything out, the indication is the Fed's going, we're continuing raising interest rates. That's what it's signaling. Now, whether they do or they don't, because there's nine days till the FMOC announcement, and they have their meetings just over a week. The, the, but it's almost extrapolating the fact, why, well, this is, what, this is what we're telegraphing. We're continuing to raise interest rates, and no matter what. Because, but the logical thing is you would pause. You would actually reverse raising interest rates. But I think there's been market manipulation last week in trying to lower the yields by artificially trying to buy across the entire yield curve to try and suppress unrealized losses. So instead of it being 650 billion, maybe it's 600 billion, I don't know, six, who, who cares, but lowering because, you know, the, so are we going to continue to see the Fed raising interest rates and yield curve suppression all going on simultaneously? And then we're back to the question, who, who's buying all these treasuries to suppress interest, you know, the yield on, on the entire yield curve? And there's no clarity on that. Again, it's down to credibility. And it's just the expediency, as you say, where we have to react, we have to make a decision. Let's, I mean, you know, it's the decision you'd make at three o'clock in the morning. You know, you can be in a meeting, you've got no idea, you're trying to think, what the hell do we do to resolve a problem? Oh, just bail everyone out, that'll sort the problem. It's that kind of thinking. It's like, we don't have a clue what to do, so just put that in place. That'll calm the markets, everyone will think everything's fine. Not realizing that but the credibility damage this does to the broader financial sector is is in immense, and and you know the Chinese will be sat there and the Russians going to the rest. Of, well, we did tell you, we did warn you about this. You know, it, it's credibility issues that are playing out in reality, and 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 to the rest of the world, they're going. So you're happy to destroy us with with the IMF, the World Bank, austerity, and you know, and and force our economies into contraction and destroying our country. But for you, just do whatever it takes to, to prevent collapse. So it's sent out relatively bad signals. And some point, when we have to accept that, that losses and failures will have to be the norm and increasingly it will do. And this is the other thing, people just sit there going, well, we can't allow this. It's like nothing can fail. They don't understand by trying to prevent failure. They're actually sowing the seeds of even more destruction for that in ways that, you know, indirect ways, things that might be 20 steps removed from SVB, but they're not thinking of the consequences of doing this. It compromises the underlying, you know, like the values basically and the analytical structure that this whole system seems to be based on. And to your point, what does like Pakistan or Sri Lanka think? when they're just like begging the IMF or whomever for a few billion dollars and then SVB goes and it's like, don't worry, we'll just create a special purpose vehicle or whatever you want to call it. And all the millionaires in Silicon Valley will not have any problems at all and they'll be able to take out all their money. I mean, what are they supposed to think? You know? Well, yeah, but the question is at what point does, you know, the regular people in society, not the high net worth individuals start to go, hang on a minute. We've had enough. We see what you're doing, what your game is, and we and we've just had enough of it. And we 
we don't see why we should put up with this. You know, it's, I mean, you can try and mask reality uh, for, a, you know, but there eventually comes a point when the illusion gives way. And this is the financialization of comedy. It's the end of life. We can sit here and, you know, if we'd have gone back to 2008 and said, or 2009 and say, in the future, we'll introduce legislation that allows us to bail everything out. It won't be called a bailout. We'll, we'll call it something else. We'll try to convince people. It isn't, but, you know, financial institutions and the financial markets are going to begin to go, look, this is insane. I mean, they've been trying to predict Fed interest rates would fall, and they've been predicting it hopelessly wrong. Because logically, they're going, you can't raise interest rates for the reasons we totally understand. Zero interest rate policy, QE for our 14 years, and you suddenly massively increase interest rates is not sustainable. But they're going, the Fed keeps doing this. And now the markets are going, well, actually, you're, you're going to bail this out. Well, we don't, we don't have confidence in you bailing this out. But then you're going to get the market intervention. They're going to step in. And prop markets up. They're going to go, right, we'll do whatever it takes. Prop the, the, the equity markets up. You know, let's let's just buy. We, we have to convince everyone that everything's okay because our entire financial existence is just one gigantic confidence trick now. You know, it, you can sit there and have confidence, but to just to, to distill this to a really very simplistic statement of fact, you can tell me that everything's fine, but if my food bill's going up 20, 30% a year, my energy bill's six, seven, eight times what they were a year ago, I don't care what you think or what you tell me because I'm suffering the consequences of your actions. And this is where, where the question becomes more to do with they can protect their own little uh, fiefdom, so to speak. But eventually, this will see is and is now seeping into reality, and it's affecting everybody. There comes a point when when does everybody lose confidence in the financial system? And I think this is as much to do what they've done is they're fearful now that this you know eventually there'll be a bridge too far, and the masses will lose confidence. And we're not saying it happens today, tomorrow, or next week, or maybe it doesn't happen. But if it does happen. That's when you get into hyperinflationary territory because hyperinflation is a confidence event. And people lose confidence in a currency, it's game over. You know, inflation's a monetary event, well, or, or, or a lack of it, although in this case, it's, it's far more complicated and nuanced what's happening with inflation now. Raising interest rates won't stop inflation. But the point is, hyperinflation's a confidence event. When people lose confidence in, in their currency, in the, the financial system, in the people running the financial system. And, you know, there's going to be a lot more people today looking at this going, hang on, I don't trust this. How many people in, in the financial world are beginning to go, this is a bridge too far, this is absurd? You know, sometimes, yeah, if you make the wrong decisions, you know, where's the risk management in people investing in all their money in a single bank? I mean, whoever's involved in risk management at these companies should be fired. I mean, it's this is that's that's kind of what I thought. Like, I, I couldn't believe when I heard that that these companies are putting like ten million dollars into a bank account. I mean, this is normal. Some of them with five <laughs> million or two hundred million. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who does this? I mean, you know, it's just this is risk management. 
I mean, hello, uh, I'm going to put all this money in the bank. Am I, is there any risk? What do you mean? Well, you know, what happens if the bank collapses? Uh, well, you're insured. Well, how much is the insurance for? $250,000. Hang on, I've got, I've just put 100 million in your bank. Oh, I'm not doing that, man. I mean, you know, but this is because we've just been convinced. And, and this goes across the entire financial system that, that there's never problems. Oh, this is someone else will have the problem. It will never affect us. You know, didn't anyone learn anything from, from 2008? But problems get out of control, even though some people like me and, and others were screaming for two years it was going to happen. Nobody again. No, it's not. This, this, we're in this situation where we have institutions, financial institutions run by people who have no concept or understanding of financial or fiscal or monetary policy. They don't understand risk management in any way, shape, or they have no concept of how to to manage a financial system and what the the repercussions for their actions are. Because and they just permanently live in this idea that well this will solve the problem. We've now just got to the point where our attitude is we'll print whatever it takes to resolve whatever problem is, and somehow we'll magically contain the inflationary risk. And the other risks associated with doing this, and and the rest of the world's going enough's enough. We've had enough of this, and you know we we're not going to put up with this anymore. And why should we put up with this anymore? Because it's plainly obvious, and this comes back to the point in two thousand and eight when <clears throat> the Chinese got very angry with the Americans because they always said to the U.S. If you need, Jack will always buy treasuries. No problem. Don't worry about it. And the U.S. just went, well, we're just printing all this money uh, to bail out the banks. And the Chinese went, we don't trust you anymore. We have huge, you have a huge credibility issue with you. And that's never gone away. So again, what's the international debt markets looking at this going, yeah, I know. If, if the U.S. wants 30 billion or 100 billion tomorrow, I'll buy it. Nobody in their right mind would buy U.S. debt now, or buy anything associated with it with the US uh, financial system, because you'd be going, well, I don't know what I'm dealing with. I don't, I don't know whether I can trust this. I don't have confidence in it. So we've now entered the realms of no confidence at all in the US financial system on an institutional sovereign level. When, how, where does that, that ends up filtering down eventually to you and I. And when we lose confidence in it, then it's over. They can say whatever they like, it's over. Because that's when you see the scenario where everybody either wants to get their money out of financial institutions in whatever capacity, or they don't trust the institution, so they just spend money as fast as they get it. And you know, too much, you know, money chasing too few goods, and you just get this spiraling effect. And people say, you know, to, to use the term Weimar Germany is an exaggeration, and I would understand. But it doesn't have to get as bad as that before eventually there just has to be an acceptance that this is over. And we, we can't continue to imagine there are no consequences for, for behaving in such an absolutely absurd and uh, matter. I mean, it's, you know, I, I'm not surprised it's happened. You knew there'd be a reaction. But, but the problem is, I mean, the, or the question is, what does the Fed do next? If the Fed continues raising interest rates, 
And it remains to be seen whether they stop or, but they're going to be under enormous pressure now to lower interest rates. But, you know, I mean, and, and then what does that do? That creates credibility issues for them. So a financial event that you actually impart cause, but not entirely, but you by raising interest rates cause this problem. And by the way, it's a huge problem that that's brewing below the surface across the entire financial sector. But, you know, the, the, now you're suggesting you're actually backtracking on your own policy decisions, but maybe we should look at what the next CPI print is because it'd be very interesting if CPI comes in significantly lower and they go, oh, we can pause because inflation is uh, cooling there. Don't be surprised if that happens. But this is all perception management. And you know, I've said this before, all economic data in the West is a farce. I wouldn't believe any of it. Absolutely not. Yeah, what statistical data they come out with? It's it has no bears no relation to reality. I mean, my favorite metric is the prices in the grocery store, and all I know is coffee. A bag of coffee is costing me eight euros now, and uh, tomatoes. I don't know if you've seen tomatoes. Those are four euros for a little thing of tomatoes. It's getting pretty intense there, and I you, I was quite shocked, frankly, the last time I went to a grocery store. And or let's say in the last two or three weeks, I thought, you know what, these prices are not staying the same even. Inflation, at least as far as these, you know, very microeconomic variables here, like tomatoes, uh, I see more inflation. I mean, I'm, that's a very small, you know, sample, but nevertheless, uh, it's not the worst sample I've ever seen. No, it is. We've got the same problem with food price inflation. Yeah, you're spending... Compared to, let's say, a year ago or so, 20, 30%, 40% more, for sure. And energy bills. Easy. You know, energy bills, goodness gracious. I mean, they're six, seven times higher. You know, and you know, exactly. It comes back to the fundamental premise. If you don't have cheap energy, you're always going to have inflation. You know, if you're paying five times more, then everything's going to cost at least five times more and a lot more than that. Because you know, you know everything consumes energy, whether it's heating your homes, whether it's lighting the streets, whether it's uh, it's you know uh, responsible for fertilizer. Big, yeah, fertilizer manufacturing has everything. Everything depends on energy. So if energy is more expensive, you're screwed. I mean, and we just have to accept that we can sit there slapping ourselves on the back, going, "We've got round Russian sanctions." Well. I mean, if you think buying Russian LNG, which you know, Russia's LNG is the second biggest importer into Europe. It's bigger than Qatar. And you think, you've, you, you know, well, you stop the pipeline, uh, gas, sorry, and now you, you're importing, as we said, LNG. And you're paying much more, five times the price. Well, let's just ignore the political statements and look at the economic reality. And that's where we're at. And, and now we're just into the realms of uh, just the fantasy world of the financial system. They've they've made a choice, they've made a decision, and you know Biden's coming out going, "We're going to go back and tell the regulators to get tough on banking regulations." Well, here's the point: if you start getting tough and loan and thresholds when banks have to declare certain things, you're going to create an SVB on steroids because all these other banks are going to get sucked in. And then suddenly someone's going to hang on a minute. You've got serious problems here. You know, and we're not saying we shouldn't have regulation. 
But this is just politics. This is politicians going, hang on, there's a 2024 election. I need to say the right things. Just say anything. Say that. Convince people we're getting tough on things. Well, why were you only tough on this? Why are you only tough on banks when they blow things or something blows up or the risk of a financial system blowing up? Why, why are you never tough when apparently there isn't a problem, even though there's quite a lot of us been screaming at you for years, that you're creating these problems? I mean, I, I always make the point in, with the US or Europe, you, they can't in reality raise interest rates. It's impossible. And in doing it, if they do so, they're going to create huge, enormous problems in the financial system, in, in terms of, in the broader sense, in economies. It's totally unsustainable because in just very simple terms, everything's dependent and predicated on cheap debt. If you don't have cheap debt, you're in serious trouble. If, you know, if, you, if you're buying treasuries, and then the yield spikes in it, and you're, when you sell those, you're going to realize enormous losses. So there's just, this is not rocket science. It's common sense. And we need to start thinking in reality. And, you know, I come back to this point, and I've said this so many times. People think there's all these nefarious plans going on with all these geniuses working out about world domination. And I keep saying the Western world's run by absolute moronic idiots with no capability to think of anything. And we keep seeing these problems. And in the end, people just going to have to accept that this is the reality. And it's far worse that we have to accept that we have people totally incapable of doing the job they're supposed to be doing because we all suffer the consequences instead of believing there are these nefarious entities who are so intelligent but apparently they're deliberately collapsing the West and somehow they're going to benefit from this in the future. I mean, this just is nonsensical talk. We have to accept that we have these people who are incapable of resolving any of the problems we're facing. And we're the ones who have to deal with the huge fallout and consequences of this. And that comes again back to perception of when in a broad sense, that perception shifts. And, and I think increasingly people are questioning things. It's still relatively small, but questioning it in a constructive way, not just going down ludicrous conspiracy theory rabbit holes. Then that's when the people lose trust and confidence. Then they're in serious trouble because that's when people do run to the banks and draw, try and draw all their money out. That's when people do suddenly go, well, I don't have any confidence. Maybe next week, loaf of bread will cost another euro. I'm going to buy every loaf of bread I can get my hands on now. Or I'm going to buy every, you know, then you suddenly create shortages in a market where people don't trust any of the currency, their government, their financial system. Then that's when you stray into hyperinflation territory. And for us to pretend that couldn't happen is like pretending 2008 could never happen if you went back. To, to 2007, there'll be a global financial crisis caused by the banks and the financial system through their reckless behavior. People would have gone, no, that won't happen. We always convince ourselves things can't happen. And this is what politicians do. No, that will never happen. When it happens, they sit there and panic. And we, it really comes back full circle to the point they make, they make decisions based on expediency with no thought of the consequences. It's just 
can we can we create the right headline in the newspaper today and then maybe by tomorrow everyone will have forgotten about this but you can't forget about something that's going to have this massive impact on our daily lives going forward and increasing ways of course well as i told my girlfriend history happens and we have to be ready for that so paul from the serious report thank you for your very eloquent and in-depth answers to the questions of the day and thank you for joining us once again on the northern minor podcast well thank you it's always a pleasure and uh, for anyone who thinks i'm being controversial i'm not i'm just trying to deal with realities i mean i'm not you know we don't take sides and things our job is to tell you what's really happening and and at times telling people what's really happening is painful it's not what they necessarily want to hear or believe but at the end of the day we should be judged by what we say and what we forecast and what are what we've anticipated to be happening and our track record is extremely good so at the end of the day for us that's vindication in what we do i could be very populist and say all the right things but then there's that small matter of integrity if you don't have integrity then you have nothing from our perspective and so we'll we'll always do what we do and and hope to keep being successful in telling people things that are not very palatable, but that's fortunately the world we live in. We're not responsible for why these problems exist. We're just saying these are these problems, that's why they're existing. And this is what shouldn't have happened, and this is what should happen. And Paul, where can people find you if they want to subscribe to the Serious Report? Okay, well, if you go to the seriousreport.com, um we've actually changed our subscription model recently a little bit where you can have a basic subscription which is and then there's a slightly enhanced one which allows you you have people saying i can't listen to the podcast in in other players and of course we couldn't allow that because then the concept becomes public but we found a way around that so people can play them in apps we've also recently added timestamps because everyone doesn't necessarily want to listen to every aspect of what we're doing. Um, and the basic one's $4.75 a month. If you subscribe for a year, you get a month free, and it's $5.50 a month for this enhanced feature. And again, you get a month free if you subscribe for a year. And um, and yeah, we'd encourage you to su subscribe. It's very cheap, but it's not cheap because we don't tell you important things. We keep it cheap because we think that People should be able to buy things that are at an affordable price. And there's people saying, well, why don't you do it for free? I go, well, do you work for free? Do you go to work and do something for nothing? We put a lot of effort in and we have to pay our bills like everybody else. I mean, this is just, there was a way of doing it for free. We do it, but it's not possible. And we we are obviously, we're named in the Twitter files, <laughs> just, which was quite interesting given when it was in history. but. But we do what we do for that reason. And if there was a way to do it for nothing, we and and still generate an income, we'd do it. But that's why we've never raised the price despite inflation in six and a half years. And and we rely on numbers and not charging people a hundred dollars a month. But we have had people approaching us to take it private and offering us silly money to do it and just give them all the information. And we said no, we will never do that because this is giving people at a very affordable price. And I think compared to our peers, we're very cheap. And we'll continue to do that. And, and the track record is do what is what we're discussing 
a reality? Does it happen? Is it does it add value to? And we we think it does, and that's why we do it. So, well, I'll say at five fifty a month, I would say there's not too much inflation on your subscription there. So, thank you again, Paul, for sharing your perspective with us. It's always incredibly interesting. And until next time, thank you for joining us. And until next time, take care. And you. Thank you. I hope you had a good marathon there. If you're still here, glad you made it. Paul, I can just listen to you forever. Always a fascinating interview. And a heads up, on May 25th will be the second quarter Global Mining Symposium put on by the Northern Miner. Just go to events.northernminer.com. And if you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.